Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Welcome to another week of, uh, of conversation about what's happening in global development news. Great to be with everybody. Um, we've got two special guests this week. Ruben Abraham is with me. He's a, a good friend and the CEO of Arta Global. A lot of uh, DevX readers certainly know you, Ruben, by reputation, if not personally, for the work you do at Arta Global and for your longtime work in think tank efforts studying the effect of development finance, international development finance flows, and, and all things global developments. Great to have you here. Hi, Ruben. Thanks, Raj. Good to be here. And we've also got Nasra Ismail with us. Hey, Nasra, welcome back to another episode. Hi, Raj. Always good to be back with the DevX team. And, and Nasra is a humanitarian expert. You've worked across bilateral aid agencies and NGOs, and it's great to have you uh, again this week as we tackle what has been another busy week of news in the global development landscape. Maybe we could just start, Ruben, with you, because I want to tap into your expertise on international finance, development finance. We had this big summit this week in Paris that President Emmanuel Macron put on, and DevEx, uh, our own Vince Chadwick, was there covering it. And it was a moment to take stock of the international financial system, to look at the World Bank and the other multilateral development banks. Uh, did you pay some attention to this? What, what do you think comes out of the, of the Paris Forum? Yeah, uh, Raj, unfortunately, I, I've been traveling, so I, I wasn't clued into this. But, um, I, you know, in, in my travels, which has been primarily to Asia, there's obviously a lot of questions being asked around the structure of the international system and the, and the consistent uh, theme that you hear, certainly in Asia, is when people say the rules-based world, whose rules? And I think... Uh, that question of whose rules, which has been taken to be, uh, you know, broadly speaking, understood in the past, I think is going to be hotly contested in the future. So I think that whose rules question uh, I, actually has ramifications for the entire sort of international uh, architecture, so to speak. Yeah, and you know, one of the themes, you know, the, the context shifts, I think, that's happening right now is, you know, we're in a different economic world order, let's say, right? Interest rates are way up from where they were a year ago in the rich world, but that's, you know, impacted developing countries as well. And we had a story this week uh, from Shabtai Gold talking about how this new reality of potentially slower growth of higher interest rates, you know, could mean that efforts like financial inclusion that have seen so much progress in the last decade um, kind of come off and that we see some slowing progress. And this is something I know you work a lot on and know a lot about being based in India, where, you know, we have uh, one of the, I guess, the world's largest digital ID infrastructure and 
And now maybe it's the world's largest financial inclusion infrastructure, too. How do you see the financial inclusion space developing, uh, Ruben, in the the current context? Well, you know, when you say largest and India, that's no surprise. If you've got the largest population, then chances are. Very (laughs) true. But uh, no, I mean, jokes aside, um, I think I think what has been built out by way of digital public infrastructure in India is, I mean, it's truly astounding. And, and at some level, uh, to me, it, it is actually quite shocking how little people outside of India know about what's been built. And and it's not just India, it's also Brazil. It's, it's a bunch of places that have built this uh, financial architecture. So just to give you a sense of, so the biometric ID was the first layer of the stack. Now what has been built is something called the Unified Payments Interface, which is a real-time bank-to-bank uh, payment platform without your... Act- so it's completely open and interoperable. So what I mean by that is... Um, so so if you think about email, email, when I email you or you email me, I don't need to know what client you're on, what server you are. We can just talk to each other. That was the early architecture of the internet. Since then, it's moved to the world of chat say where if i need to speak to you on whatsapp you need to be on whatsapp as well and the minute you do that you basically get monopolies because of network effects uh, it's the same in the world of payments so for instance in the us you've got venmo but for you to be able to send money to somebody you need to be on the venmo ecosystem and the same goes for alipay and and wechat in china and so on what the indians have basically built is a completely open and interoperable system which basically means that anyone can send money to anybody on any platform or any app without actually knowing any detail beyond your mobile phone number. So just to give you the final numbers on this, I mean, I was just looking at the uh, numbers from last month. It has, in the the month of uh, May, there were nine and a half billion transactions done just in one month and uh, a value of close to $200 billion dollars. Have basically been transacted, and um, and and this is growing at a you know fairly fast clip the the growth in the infrastructure, and if you go back to 2015 when about 35 to 40 percent of India was actually fully banked, uh, I remember some World Bank predictions from that time basically said that it would take 45 to 46 years for India to get 100 percent banked. In reality. Basically, India has got as close to 100% banked as possible by 2021. So in about six to seven years, they actually closed the gap. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And it's an interesting juxtaposition. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on today's show, because, you know, coming from India and sitting there, you see a very different perspective, perhaps, than what gets discussed in a place like Paris at the forum this past exactly. week here in Washington, D.C., uh, because there's rapid progress. On the other hand, you know, there's also a huge gap still. I think the piece we published said there's still half a billion people in, on the continent of Africa, for example, that are not included in the formal financial economy. Uh, Nostra, you spent a lot of time there. You were, you know, CARES uh, country director mm-hmm. in, in Somalia and you were country director for, for Oxfam in Kenya, uh, among many other hats you've worn over the years. How do you see the, the financial inclusion landscape in in East Africa or in Africa more broadly? Yeah. And, and when you think about some of what Ruben just described for India, does it connect for you? Yeah, no, I really appreciate um, this discussion and, and particularly that um, proximate lens that you're using, Ruben. Um, these meetings obviously brought, you know, everyone's 
you know, been covering them. Uh, they get a lot of limelight. The fact that they are held in Paris, you know, um, sends a, a kind of signal in terms of like where these issues are most um, going to be convened around. I think when it comes to climate, climate is where everything, all the rosy, you know, colored um, frames really fall apart because the impact and the inequity that it services means that despite the restructurings that are happening at the highest global level, um, the impacts are not going to be equal. The impacts are hard felt throughout Africa, particularly as we see malnutrition rising all over uh, East and West Africa. And so I think to me, what was really interesting, Raj, and I, I, I thought of you um, as I was like watching clips of it is, Despite the conversations on the hard parts of not only the restructuring of the debts, but also the restructuring and what happens to the World Bank and all the other multilateral institutions that are um, sort of at the uh, foundational level of what gets discussed and how they discuss. Ultimately, my key takeaways were these were arguments, convenings, polite diplomatic discussions that were also about who makes the rules and whether the rulemaking is actually even fair. The interventions from the Kenyan president to the Zimbabwean president, the president of Zambia, and of course our all-star uh, incredible orator that is Mia Motley from Barbados, they were questioning not just the structure, not just the debt, and not just the inequitable aspects of the financing, but also the governing of bodies like this and, and obviously convenings like this. And so I found actually the juxtaposition of those hard truths and soft truths to be quite powerful because ultimately the success of how debt is restructured, how financing is done, and who gets to um, meaningfully benefit from the financing paradigms, ultimately it's also the strength and voice of the president who represents those communities. And so just the fact that the Kenyan president called out quite powerfully that there's an inequity in how the governing of these boards are done, especially when Ajay, you know, is in the room as as he's on his first few months of being uh, the head of the World Bank, I thought that was significant. And I think that those conversations are going to uh, be remembered for a very long time. We haven't seen these kinds of interventions, at least for my time, uh, where, where African governments are saying, we don't want to just be here just to ask for money. We need to, be, to help govern and be part of this governing body of the world and its financing. And so I think I'm 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 impressed by what the, what those conversations have have uh, have made um, uh, have come to, but also um, what they will mean ultimately in the hard truths of how money will be spent, how restructuring will be spent, and um, whose debt ultimately gets uh, to be waived. I guess there's the the macro question of how the international system is structured, how fair mm. or equitable it is, and certainly one of the attractive points about Ajay Banga being nominated as president of the World Bank was that he did spend most of his life in India and uh, it kind of gave a different lens potentially to his presidency. The other side of this coin, you know, besides the macro side is the micro and, and there the focus on localization. We had a few stories this week about USAID's effort around localization comes into focus. And I think about, Ruben, some of what you talked about around financial inclusion, it's just such a different era for localization when in the past it would have been hard to to find ways to work with local partners or to localize programs. And now you can very directly identify, you know, digitally ID, send money with very little transaction cost, if any. I guess, how, how are you seeing this localization question from your perspective sitting in India and, and thinking about the region where you operate, Ruben? So, so again, uh, Raj, I think, um, you know, and this may be a uniquely kind of Indian slash Asian lens on this, but 
I mean, shouldn't it have been local all along? I mean, this idea that somebody sitting in Washington or somebody sitting in London had more insight on a local level problem was, I think, is a is is you know when you think about it objectively, I mean, that should never have been the case, right? So, so I think um, I think this is where I think you know a lot of these things need to be fundamentally rethought. So. If you, if you know, and this is where I think Stefan Durkan's recent book about elite buy-in and so on should be made kind of compulsory read, reading for people because you know that is something that, for instance, if you live in these places, you know instantly, right? I mean, without the elite buy-in, you actually get nowhere. So, um, so I think localization is something that should always have been a priority. Um, and if if the if the reason to not have localization is because you believe that there are capacity and capability gaps, then the effort should have been to actually build those cap capacity, capability, institutional go governance capacity locally. This idea that this stuff could be done remotely, I think, you know, it's it's well past its use by date. And I hope, it, you know, at least I hope this USAID move and so on pushes in that direction. Now, certainly in, in, in India and in Asia, this is not even a conversation anymore, right? I mean, no one talks about this. I so yeah. I so appreciate that, uh, Ruben, and I think that sentiment is uh, is, is is well felt. Um, it's almost uh, this is this is what's a little insane about the localization discussion. Um, depending on which region in the world you're in, uh, some of it feels like it's just the beginning of a conversation. Some of it feels like this is actually going to set us back. We cannot in 2023 have a discussion about the value and worth and role of local actors. As, as you say, Ruben, uh, this is a non-starter. And, and, and in fact, um, yeah, no one outside of uh, your area, India, uh, should be thinking about uh, not just doing work, but implementing real public service type roles um, that work with governments. And so I think it's, it's just, uh, it, but, but the conversation lags depending on where you are. Um, last time Raju and I talked about this, uh, it was more on, um, you know, how much of the goal, the 25% goal, it can USAID really come through. And I think even with their report last, um, a couple of weeks ago, the progress is, is incremental, but it's not insignificant um, to push nearly one and a half billion dollars uh, out of their uh, coffers to local actors. I mean, that is, that is a baseline. That is not the goal. That is not the outcome. But the questions have been, for many of us who follow this discussion, what helped USAID to even as small as it is, make that move? And can we build systems and new rules around it so that it doesn't get stuck, in the words of Kassestein, in the sludge of bureaucracy? So that was kind of one thing that I've been thinking through um, so that in places like Asia, where this is kind of a, an, ab an abnormality, that Africa can also join. But with Africa, you get this really strange thing about like local actors, these presumptions. Local actors don't have capacity. They, if they do have capacity, it's just at a certain level and a and, and they want to cap it, uh, their um, financial absorption at a certain level, unlike the international NGOs. And so you find that discussion unhelpful, but I almost appreciate the fact that in Asia, it's something altogether um, abnormal. And maybe we all should be heading towards India. Lots of lessons from India. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it depends, obviously, on how big the economy is we're talking about and how important bilateral aid is. Obviously, in India, it's completely unimportant. It's very small. Uh, but in many other countries, including in East Africa, you know, you'll find bilateral aid is big. And so, you know, USAID policy actually can matter a lot. Um, 
And you know, it's interesting that Ruben, you brought up Stefan Durkheim. Actually, your timing is great as a plug for the DevX Book Club, which we just published today. My episode interviewing Stefan about his book, Gambling on Development. Um, and, and just to underline your point, Ruben, you know, he he gets into this idea that in the end, if you want to achieve development goals, you've got to find out who at the local level has actual influence. Yeah, and you know. These are elites in, in, a, in a sense, right? These might be uh, village elders. These might be business leaders. These might be community or faith leaders. But there are people in every community, wherever you might live in the world, that have outsized influence. And if they're not bought in to whatever the development paradigm is, to, to whatever the initiative or project is, chances are it's not going to last very long. It's not going to have long-term effects. And and in Stefan's many years studying these issues, this is kind of the core underlying theme. It's another way of talking about localization. And as you say, it's kind of plainly obvious, you would think. Yet, you know, our system is not structured that way. Uh, and, and for, you know, good, good reasons, you know, maybe not good normatively, <laughs> but for reasons, you know, that come out of the history of how the world is unequal and, and how, um, you know, these institutions were set up to begin with, Ruben. Yeah, I mean, it's also the incentive structures, right? The incentive structures keep it a certain way. So so to your point about, you know, it depends on the size of the economy. No, absolutely true. But then the question you've got to ask is, how did India or China get to the point where bilateral aid was no longer necessary, right? That is the most important question to ask then. And then the question then becomes, okay, how does a Kenya get to where India and China are today, where bilateral aid is not consequential anymore? interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devx.com newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. What about multilateral aid, Ruben? What do you think, you know, um, Nasser brought up the World Bank and Ajay Banga and obviously the focus this week and some of our reporting highlighted it is how do you get these multilateral banks to do more, quote unquote, innovative finance, right, to unlock private sector investment in economies. What, what's yeah. your feeling about that debate and how it's going and whether real progress is being made? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think again, you know, the World Bank, if it could think of itself more as on the certainly on the finance side, if it could think of itself more in, in a catalytic sense, I think we would actually get a lot of bang for the buck. I mean, a good example of this within the World Bank system is MEGA, right? I mean, MEGA is actually, in my opinion, is severely underappreciated in terms of what it could actually be doing. Right. And it's the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency. I think I have that right. That's right. Uh, which is essentially like the insurance arm of the World Bank, right, that can help insure a project against uh, political risk. Let's say you're building a power plant and uh, the government changes. You know, will you as an investor get paid back? Well, if if you have a MEGA guarantee, that might make you feel more comfortable going forward, even if there's an election coming up in a couple of years. 
exactly and 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 so in in a in my past life for instance when we experimented with instruments like first loss guarantees i mean it is very you know it, it is very consequential things like first loss guarantees insurance and so on in terms of the amount of private capital it unlocks because you are backstopping any potential downside and then you very quickly realize the difference between the perception of risk and real risk so what you end up with is actually in in a lot of contexts what you actually get is mispriced risk and so there is a role for somebody to actually reprice risk so to speak yeah it's interesting we we had an opinion article published on devx this week um by quite a who's who of uh presidents of international agencies tedros Dr. Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, is one of the signatories. Werner Hoyer, the head of the European Investment Bank, and several other, you know, major international agencies from the IDB to the African Development Bank and Islamic Development Bank, because they're all touting a new platform. They're calling the Health Impact Investment Platform. It's a bit short on details, but essentially the idea is to use innovative finance like first loss uh, guarantees to get. countries to be able to invest more in their primary healthcare systems. And you know part of the idea there this gets to the question of mispriced risk Ruben is you know if countries can have a a stronger primary health system you actually save money in the long run. Correct. You you've you know less less cases that have to go to secondary or tertiary care. Um but yet there's this kind of market failure. There's not enough money going uh into primary healthcare system. So there's this big new announcement again a little bit light on details, but we're happy to have it published in our pages and it's interesting news this week. Um and I guess you know just to open it up to both of you, you know, when you think about this question and the Paris forum and where it collides with basic things like health, um Do you, do you, any any takeaway from from that piece or from anything else you saw this week, Ruben or Nasra? Maybe I can uh, jump in here. I'm, you know, at the end of the day, keeping um, communities, you know, not only healthy but educated enough to then really make sure that these countries around the world doesn't really matter which uh, part of the world they're in, but that they can be competitive and they can be healthy. I think there's just more of a an urgency that i feel like we're uh, all paying attention to this and governments are not uh not sharing that this idea of not only repackaging um financing but also looking at the quality of financing where it's coming from and then how it actually meets the needs of your local community this was central in one of the um i think probably neglected conferences that happened a few months ago in kenya this was the mo ibrahim um philanthropy forum and it was such a discuss uh, it was such a um uh interesting discussion because one it was an african philanthropist holding uh his own african continent and some of the premier leadership to account on questions like this what are you doing with money where you're asking for better restructuring of debt and better restructuring of packages from the global north how are you using them to solve local issues uh, a lot of them being in the social uh policy arena and quite frankly one of the things that was very uh, hopeful about that discussion was one to have those conversations where they need to be had was one thing and that sent a really clear cultural signal for those of us who are in Africa and then two to really think about where can you find innovation in the systems where yes you've got conflict you have major governance issues you have major instability in parts of east and west africa you've got to think about how you innovate locally meaning using your local talents i thought the conversation both in what you said raj but also that 
that is happening more and more among Africans is we've got to find better uses of the money that we already have. And where we need to fight better, we've got to fight better and negotiate better at the global north, which I believe happened um, in the Paris uh, summit. But ultimately, it comes down to can you feed your people? Can you keep your country stable and peaceful? And can you um, educate your young people? That is the future. And I'm and, and I'm. I'm hopeful about where this conversation is going. The sense of urgency is something that I'm surprised by, and I hope it continues. Yeah, we had another interesting piece this week that you make me think of, Nastra, um, when you talk about the quality of funding and not just kind of the headline announcement. So the Global Fund, which you know is one of the more effective agencies in development history, both in terms of getting the political backing for funding for HIV and TB and malaria, but also in working directly with countries, you know, they, they get proposals from countries and they try to build, you know, the national health system to combat these diseases. They announced um, as part of their new strategy that they're going to try to link up their efforts on combating those three diseases with non-communicable diseases like, you know, cardiovascular disease and cancer. And, and it's an interesting idea because you first might think, well, are they losing sight of their mission and their focus? But actually they're taking an agency that's pretty effective, and they're saying, ultimately, if you look at what's happening to people living with HIV or with TB, the big story is comorbidity. People are getting, you know, multiple issues at once, multiple health issues that are connected, and so they have to address them. And actually, in a way, it's an exciting thing, because if you get the Global Fund with its effective model to focus on these other disease areas that might normally be neglected, uh, maybe you make some real progress. And and, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of counterintuitive in a sense when you think of the architecture of, of our space and everyone having their own lane to swim in. But but actually, this kind of cross-cutting approach may be the thing that's that makes the most sense from here. Absolutely. And and, it, and, and the word is it's integration. Um, I remember uh, years ago when I was at the U.S. government, we were looking at a country like Mongolia with all of the mining you know, industry and all of the sort of hard infrastructure that it had invested in mining and other areas. But ultimately, uh, Raj, its citizens were dying from exactly what you said, non-communicable diseases, diabetes, other types of cardiovascular issues, uh, car crashes. They had one of the highest rates of losing young people or creating disabilities that came from traffic incidents. And so you end up sort of saying, we can fix the whole healthcare system, might even think about how do you help uh, govern your institutions like the Ministry of Health and Education. Or you can really say, but what are pe- where are people losing lives and productive lives? And it was all non-communicable diseases. So I actually hope with, with um, this organization going a more integrated route, and it will actually also be a more complex route, that there is a model where you cannot just have programs that are siloed. Uh, you've got to integrate. You've got to think about centering the person and the population's issues. Where it might be climate, it also might be, you know, um, conflict. Where it may not be conflict, it might be corruption. But we can no longer afford to just have our eye on it and a specialty uh, role that we play. Uh, one of the books that's, I think, kind of getting everyone excited, speaking about books um, for the book club. I mean, um, Ezra Klein recently interviewed Jennifer Palka. Uh, one of the former uh, White House um, political appointees, but also the former founder of Code for America. And she has this incredible book uh, called um, Recoding America, Why Government is Failing in the Digital Age and How We Can Do Better. That conversation was so seminal in terms of where we are and how we think about government, not just in America, but really around the world. And ultimately, she's making a case to coming down to the, the choices that we make around policy and implementation. There's so much in the 
context of governance that can be very confusing and very bureaucratic, but ultimately, can you execute and implement on a policy level? And we seem to be failing on that. And I don't think that's just an issue in American government. I think that's an issue with all governments having to realign their ambition in the world that we're in today, which is a very different world uh, in the last three years than we have, let's say, in the last 30 yeah, it does feel like we're in a different moment, right, with the, the way the macroeconomy has shifted, and the geopolitical situation has shifted so much. It's been a big, big week of news. We've gotten to some of it here. Uh, but Ruben, before we go, I'd love to get just your take on one of the big items in the past week, which was the visit of President or Prime Minister Modi to the United States um, to meet with President Biden and to address Congress. And uh, he had a he had a big, a big week here. Um what, what was it like to see that from, from India? And what's your perspective on what uh, India's kind of rising role, including its presidency of the G20, uh, might mean for the development landscape? So um, I, I think, I think you know, in the midst of the gloomy news globally, I think India is in a very interesting spot because there's a whole bunch of things that are happening that are hugely beneficial for India. Uh, uh, starting with uh, with with China, and, 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 and you know, so if you had to look for one word that explains why um, uh, this trip to Washington was as big a deal as it was, and, and a state visit and all of that, is it just comes down to one thing, which is China. Um, as the world tries to de-risk away from China, I think in many ways India will be the main beneficiary of of the de-risking. You can see that. Um, you know, already Apple has moved a significant uh, minority of its production lines uh, to India. Uh, the hope is that what I've heard from them is that up to 17 to 20 percent of their production of iPhones is going to be in India by 2025 or thereabouts. So there's supply chain shifting, there's geopolitics shifting, uh, and all of this also means that, like, you know, the, that India perhaps is the one country that is able to actually currently buy Russian oil without facing any real sanctions, and amazingly enough, actually resell the Russian oil back to the Europeans. So that tells you a great deal about uh, where India is at right now. And, and look, at the end of the day, it's all driven by the fact that it is the fastest growing large economy in the world. So um, just having growth actually helps you a great deal in terms of geopolitics. So. If you ask me for one recommendation for what African countries could do as well, it would be the same, which is grow. And when you grow and the economy grows and all of those things, good things happen, then, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've discussed on this, uh, on the, in this conversation actually starts to fall into place. And that's what we've certainly realized with India is that post-91 started growing, went from a tiny, you know, relatively tiny economy to the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, soon to be the third largest economy in the world. I think this stuff actually helps. And and that's where I think some of these conversations need to basically ask the question of how did India and China get to the place that they are and how did the single biggest uh, reduction in poverty happen in China? I think those are the, to me, are the really interesting questions. Yeah, there, are, there are South to South um, lessons here. Sorry, Rod, just wanted to uh, have an opportunity to say something here. There's, I, I think, Ruben, you make uh, definitely a case, and it's been happening over the last decade, but but there's also another urgency in terms of like what South to South learning looks like in terms of growth on the economic level and reduction on 
on harm, but but I also would would probably caution um, the example of of growth by all by all means because we also know it's part of Modi's visit to the U.S. I know a number of um, lawmakers, uh, particularly those representing Muslim communities, were also uh, rightfully um, questioning the platform and saying, you know, where's the responsibility with Modi's um, inside his own home in terms of um, some of the minority uh, nations that are some of the minority communities in his nation. And so I think it's a it's a cautioning. It's not a complete disagreement, but for sure, in terms of economic growth and the ability to uh, face your own uh, face your own plight, but also pay your own bills, there's definitely lots of lessons there. Um, but ultimately, also in terms of the largest democratic country around the world, um, it's also important to caveat and caution that it's not growth by all means, but it's growth that also respects human rights and uh, makes sure that we're able to all live together. But but I take your point. Uh, I wish we had more time to to do this. Yeah, I would just a uh, couple of quick thoughts as we close up here. You you mentioned Ruben uh, de-risking with China, and you're you're right on the language that the Biden administration is using. They're talking about de-risking as opposed to decoupling. They're trying to create this middle ground. And you're right, India is certainly be finding itself as kind of the indispensable country. Everyone needs to have a relationship, um, including, as you say. Uh, Russia, both Russia and Europe, which is a very unusual place for India to find itself in. Um, and, and it does beg the question, can this growth engine in India, and that you see in other countries too that have a similar demographic dividend, I think the, the median age in India is 26 years old, I think, something like that. 28. Um, 28. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's similar with, with Nigeria and, other, um, and some other large economies that are growing. And the question is, you know, is this new era we're in of higher interest rates, potentially slower global growth, a transition to a green economy? You know, will countries like India be able to, to use this as an opportunity to both grow and, as Nasser says, develop? So it's, it's a big macro story. We've, we've touched on it a little bit in our discussion today and in some of our coverage this week. But it's been great to, to have a chance to chat with the two of you. Thank you for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for listening in uh, for this week in global development. Wonderful. Thanks, Raj. Thank thanks, you. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.